Thanks for checking out Chemistry Connections on the Hopewell Valley Student Podcasting Network, a proud partner of HVSPN.com, where students come together to publish content to share with the world. The opinions represented within this episode are those of the content creators only. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Chemistry Connections. My name is Srima Zavi, and I'm your host for episode 16 called The Chemistry Behind Bad Habits. So today, I'll be discussing everything there is to know behind the formation of bad habits. I'll first be going over exactly what habits are, and more specifically, what a bad habit is. I'll also be giving a brief description into why bad habits are formed in the first place. Afterwards, I'll dive deep into the actual science behind habit formation, which consists of topics mainly from neuroscience, and as a result, chemistry, which is foundational for neuroscience. In this segment, I'll also be discussing the involvement and function of different parts of the brain in habit formation. Finally, I'll be sharing my own personal connection to negative habits and why this topic really interests me and why the field of neuroscience and neurobiology and neuropsychology interests me as a whole. So let's get started. There are many ways you can define habits, but the generally agreed upon definition is that they are rituals and behaviors that are performed automatically, allowing us to perform activities without actually thinking about them. So basically they're actions that you do without having to decide if you want to do them each time you commence the action. Oftentimes you don't really even realize that you're doing that particular action. It just kind of happens. And you don't really know why or like understand why that's happening. So let's first understand the concept of good and bad habits, because the title of this podcast obviously is Chemistry by Bad Habits. So what do I mean by bad habits? By bad habits, I mean habits that are harmful to your mental and or physical health. Most common ones for sure include smoking, drugs, excessive viewing of your phone or other electronic devices, drinking alcohol too often, and eating more than you're supposed to. Even things like procrastination, drinking coffee, and swearing are considered to be bad habits. So let's use the excessive viewing for phone example. When many people wake up, the first thing they do is go on their phones and start browsing Instagram or YouTube or looking at their text messages, and it's kind of like a ritual that's done every morning. I'm sure many of you guys listening can relate. You just do it without really thinking about why you're doing it, and so it's a habit. It's a bad habit because viewing your phone a lot results in eye strain, possible neck pain, sleep problems, and I won't really get into this, but social media is obviously known to affect mental health in negative ways. So in general, how does something like this become a habit, especially if it's affecting you in a negative way? Most psychologists go to the habit loop in order to explain this phenomenon, and they will say that this neurological loop underlies all habits. So the loop consists of a cue, a routine, and a reward. Those are the three components that make up the loop. A cue is basically anything that triggers the habit by reminding you of it or initiating it. Cues can be a location, a time of day, an emotional state, and more. The cue basically tells our brain to go into this automatic processing mode or this routine. The routine is the actual habit. So the habit, the first several times it's done, it's done consciously and you choose to do the action. But over time, as a result of the reward, it becomes automatic. It is known as a routine because whenever a cue triggers the habit, 
you start following that routine that your brain has developed. The series of actions that make up the routine is the same or very similar every single time the habit is unconsciously put into action and done. The reward, this aspect, it provides positive reinforcement for the desired behavior, making it more likely that you will produce that behavior in the future. So once your brain associates a behavior with a reward, you begin to develop a craving for that reward, which can become an addiction. Your nervous system is continuously monitoring which actions satisfy your desires, even if they affect you in a harmful way over time. Many scientists also believe that you are most vulnerable to fall to bad habits during times of stress and negative emotions, since you oftentimes don't have the willpower to prevent such habits or the brain power to prevent such habits from forming and mainly because at those times when you often run out of you know mental energy, our prefrontal cortex dis can disengage. Uh, the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that's used for higher level thinking. And so as a result, if that disengages, you slip into bad habits because they take less mental energy and activity. It should also be noted that a process called chunking is the root of habits. Chunking is basically a process in which the brain converts a sequence of actions into an automatic routine, and it's basically a way that the brain saves effort. Habits enable our brain to work less and be more efficient, since you don't have to really concentrate on every component of the routine. The disadvantage with chunking is that when you continue to chunk something, the routine becomes outcome independent. Over time, the chunked actions are performed without the need for a positive reward. So this is what really happens, you know, when you're dealing with a hard-to-break habit. The science behind this process of chunking will also be explained in a little bit. So this was an introduction into habits and habit formation. And so now you guys should probably know, you know, have an understanding of what a bad habit is and how they generally form. So now let's get into the actual science behind habit formation, which again will include topics from neuroscience and chemistry. So let's get into it. Habit formation involves learned associations between an event and a behavioral response. Before we develop an automatic habit, we begin with an actual goal-directed behavior that involves complex thinking. The goal of habit formation is essentially so that the brain is able to free up processing space so that the thinking requirement for the routine that makes up the habit is turned off so that now the brain is free and can process other pieces of information. So what happens in the brain is, while learning goal-directed associations, connections between the prefrontal cortex, which I explained above is the part of the brain which is basically responsible for high, like higher level cognitive functions like thinking and planning, so connections between the prefrontal cortex and the basal ganglia, the basal ganglia is part of the brain that controls voluntary movements and emotional expressions. These connections basically change their activity to reflect a more automatic association. A signal arises during the early learning process in the dorsolateral striatum, region of the basal ganglia. This part of the brain is able to chunk a task-related events together so the whole sequence of tasks becomes one single event. Neurons related to the task fire at the beginning and end of the task, and as a result, the entire task is represented as a single event. So at the beginning of the learning process, the neurons in the striatum, they emit a continuous string of signals, but as actions begin to consolidate into habitual movements, the neurons basically fire their signals only at the beginning and end of the action performed. With repetition of the task, the strength of the chunk representation increases. So this was obviously you know, a little bit confusing, but a simple way to think about it is this. 
New neural pathways are formed when repeated behavior, and the more a brain circuit fires, the easier it becomes for our brain to do whatever that circuit controls. So as a result, information will then flow in a new, different way. Neural pathways are made of neurons connected by dendrites, and dendrites increase with frequency when a behavior is performed. Neurons communicate through a process called neuronal firing, which is where the chemistry aspect can now come in. So besides containing all the normal components of a cell, like a nucleus and organelles and such, neurons also contain unique structures for receiving and sending electrical signals that make neural communication and signaling possible. Like other cells, neurons each have a cell body or soma that contains a nucleus, smooth and rough endoplasmic reticulum, a Golgi apparatus, and other cellular components. But neurons also have dendrites, which are branch-like structures extending away from the cell body, and their job is to receive messages from other neurons and allow those messages to travel to the cell body. Neurons also contain these um, tube-like structures, and these tube-like structures are called axons. These carry electrical impulses from the cell body or from another cell's dendrites to the structures at the opposite end of the neuron, known as an axon terminal, which can then pass the impulse to another neuron. Neurons, they also contain synapses, which are chemical junctions between the axon terminals of one neuron and the dendrites of another. It's basically a space between two neurons where they can pass messages uh, to communicate. Neurons exist in a fluid environment. They're basically surrounded by extracellular fluid and contain intracellular fluid. The neuronal membrane keeps these two fluids separate, which is important because the electrical signal that passes through the neuron develops basically as a result of these intracellular and extracellular fluids being electrically different. The difference in charge across the membrane, which is called the membrane potential, provides energy for the signal. The electrical charge of the fluids is possible due to the ions potassium and sodium dissolved in the fluid, which are known as electrolytes, since they basically give the fluids the ability to conduct electricity since these dissociated ions freely move in the solution, allowing a charge to then flow through the solution. And this, a change or shift in this charge across a cell is very significant in cell communication. The semi-permeable nature of the neuronal membrane somewhat restricts the movement of these charged molecules. And as a result, some of the charged particles tend to become more concentrated either inside or outside the cell. Between signals, the neuron's membrane potential is in a state of readiness known as the resting potential. In this state, sodium and potassium ions uh, basically, ions are just atoms that have lost that have lost or gained an electron, and so they're now positively charged. So these sodium potassium ions, they're lined up on either side of the cell membrane, and they're ready to rush across the membrane where the neuron goes active, and the membrane opens its gates. Ions in high concentration are ready to go to low concentration areas, and positive ions are ready to move to areas with negative charge due to columbic attractions. A columbic attraction is simply an attraction that occurs between oppositely charged particles. A sodium-potassium pump is what allows this movement of ions across the membrane. The sodium-potassium pump is an enzyme that transports sodium and potassium ions across the cell membrane against their concentration gradients in a ratio of three sodium ions out for every two potassium ions in. If you don't know, um, enzymes are protein molecules that act as catalysts in a reaction, which means that they increase the rate of a reaction. And they do this by reducing the amount of activation energy needed for a reaction to take place. What activation energy is, it's, it's basically the amount of energy that reactants need to collide with in order for 
their collisions to result in reactions. That's basically how reactions work. Uh, and so then what uh, enzymes basically do, they enable reactants to come together and essentially react more easily. They make this process easier for the reactants. In order for it to function, the pump alternates between two major conformations, enzyme one and enzyme two. In the enzyme one conformation, the metal binding sites have high have a high affinity for metal cations, meaning that the metal binding sites bind to metal cations more easily. While in the enzyme two conformation, the metal binding sites have a lower affinity for metal ions, which basically means that they're more they're less likely to bind to uh, metal cations. In the resting state. Sodium ions are at a higher concentration outside the cell, so they will tend to move into the cell while the potassium ions are more concentrated inside the cell, and so they'll move out of the cell. The inside of the cell is slightly more negatively charged compared to the outside of the cell in the resting state, and so this also causes sodium to move into the cell due to Coulomb's, Coulomb's law and the attraction of uh, sodium ions, Na plus ions, to negative ionic charge inside the cell. From this resting potential state, the neuron receives a signal at the dendrites in the form of a chemical messenger known as a neurotransmitter, which binds to a chemical receptor on the dendrite. Neurotransmitters bind to receptors via intramolecular or intramolecular forces, which include ionic bonds, hydrogen bonds, dipole-dipole forces, plus lens dispersion forces. So ionic bonds, they're basically bonds that result from the electrostatic attraction between oppositely charged ions. Hydrogen bonds there are intermolecular forces which occurs between two molecules wherein one of the molecules, a hydrogen, is bonded to a nitrogen, oxygen, or fluorine, which are electronegative uh, elements. And then the second molecule contains a net dipole with an oxygen, nitrogen, and fluorine. And so the hydrogen of that first uh, molecule I mentioned is attracted to the partially negative oxygen, nitrogen, and fluorine of the second molecule. Dipole-dipole forces, they're basically attractive forces that exist between polar molecules. And then uh, London dispersion forces. So in London dispersion forces, or LDFs, it's basically possible that at a random moment in time, the electrons of a molecule end up more on one side of that molecule than the other side. And due to this, the side of the molecule that has more electrons becomes partially negative, while the other side of the other region becomes partially positive, which basically means that the molecule is now polarized. It has, you know, a partially positive end and a partially negative end. It has two, basically, you know, positive pole and negative pole. Uh, this molecule uh, that's polarized will now start affecting the electrons of a neighboring molecule and essentially causes the neighboring molecule to also become polarized. And then these two molecules are are, are now attracted to each other. And that's basically the overall concept of uh, low dispersion forces. So generally, neurotransmitters are molecules and they're generally, uh, for the most part, made up of covalent bonds. And so as a result, they're partially positive poles or partially negative poles are attracted to the charge of uh, the receptor protein. So as a result of this binding, small pores open on the neuronal membrane, allowing sodium ions to move into the cell propelled by charge differences, which is obviously a clear instance of Coulomb's law in action, uh, but they're also propelled by concentration differences. This then causes the internal charge of the cell to become more positive, since sodium ions are cations, which are ions with a positive charge, uh, which is a process, this process is known as depolarization. And then, so what happens is the charge reaches a certain level called the threshold of, ex of excitation, and then the neuron becomes active, and then the action potential begins. What an action potential is, it's basically a rapid change in polarity that moves along the nerve fiber from neuron to neuron, 
as the internal charge of the cell changes from partially negative to partially positive. Many additional pores open, causing a massive influx of sodium ions and a huge positive spike in the membrane potential, known as the peak action potential. At this peak, the sodium gates close and the potassium gates open and potassium ions leave the cell. This then results in the neuron's membrane returning to its resting state. And this process is known as repolarization, which is another change in polarity which results in the restoration of the negative membrane potential of the neuron, meaning that the inside of the neuron is partially negative inside. The action potential is an electrical signal that moves from the cell body down the axon to the axon terminals. The action potential is propagated as full strength at every point along the axon due to the action potential being basically an all or none phenomenon. So when this action potential arrives at the terminal bunny on the axon terminal, uh, the synaptic vesicles release their neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft, which is a space that separates uh, two neurons. The neurotransmitters travel across the synapse and bind to receptors of the dendrites of the adjacent neurons. And the process repeats itself in the new neuron. And this means that cellular communication between neurons has been achieved. So it's pretty clear that chemistry has a huge role to play in cell communication and therefore has a huge role to play in habit formation because the process, you know, the whole thing is as a result of these charge differences and the attraction across cell membranes. So that's how messages are transmitted from neurons and how brain cells communicate. When they communicate frequently, the connection between them strengthens and the messages get transmitted faster as they travel the same pathway over and over again until these behaviors become automatic. And at this point, the prefrontal cortex isn't even being engaged anymore. The capacity of our basal ganglia enables us to perform complex behaviors without even being mentally aware of them. So initially, when you adopt a new behavior, you engage your prefrontal cortex because you aren't accustomed to the action yet. You need to think about each action in the routine. When something becomes a habit, you no longer have to think about each individual action since they're controlled by other parts of the brain like the DSL and the striatum as mentioned before, uh, which are involved with habitual and automatic behaviors. The striatum is known to release chemicals in the form of neurotransmitters that inhibit the complex thinking part of the brain. So neurons in the brain fire and then they give chemical rewards and once a habit and reward are tied together in the brain, Reward neurons start firing before the behavior is actually done, which is what results in craving. All right, so why do I have an interest in uh, the science behind bad habits? What drove me to you know talk about this topic? So I consider myself a very easily distracted individual, and habits such as you know fingernail biting and picking or nose picking or any other so-called gross habit, it's just it's always been a huge distraction for me. But uh, it doesn't really seem to be for most others, uh, you know, from my experience. My brother, for instance, he's been a fingernail you know biter and picker his whole life, and no matter how much I berate him or tell him to stop, he doesn't. And I never really understood how people develop such habits, but I still found it interesting how such individuals don't even realize that they do it and you know they do it. Uh, other members of my family and many individuals I know also seem to have such habits. And, you know, I've always just found it like disgusting and annoying. And so <laughs> part of the reason why I picked this topic is to better understand these habits so that, you know, I can just be better educated on the topic since, uh, as you know, now I know it really isn't their fault. It's similar, to, you know, this concept is similar to why 
millions of Americans wake up and automatically turn to their smartphones, or why 70% of all Americans wake up and go brush their teeth automatically. It's all due to, you know, complex neural patterns in our brains. And it can be frustrating because you, uh, the person doing the habit, you know, you know, you don't know why you feel inclined to check your phone whenever you see a notification parent. But it's the genius of neuromarketing and basically corporations playing with your, you know, uh, neural circuits. Uh, so I've always, you know, I've always also just been curious about the inner workings of her brain, as well as its impact on cognition and overall function. And uh, I actually plan on studying neuroscience and uh, neurology, as well as neurobiology in the future, because it's just something that I have an interest in, uh, for one, and also because several close members of my family have neurological disorders. Uh, and as a result, uh, some of them have experienced mental health issues later in life due to having trouble coping with uh, such conditions. So since I find the development of bad habits intriguing, and since I already had an interest in your science and mental health, I thought that it'd be pretty cool to kind of connect the two uh, topics by discussing the neuroscience of bad habits, which includes, of course, topics from chemistry. So uh, what's the importance of this topic? Well, first of all, Every person in the world has habits that control their lives. And I literally mean control their lives from our daily routine to the rate of our success. It's it's pretty scary how much our lives are controlled by habits. Uh, you know, for instance, so let's, okay, let's see your daily routine. You wake up, uh, you wake up and automatically look at your phone. You then, you know, brush your teeth, you take a shower, you have a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, maybe while you're thinking about a problem, you chew on the tip of your pen. And then later on during the day, you shop. And, you know, on and on, your entire routine is controlled by habits, uh, which are, again, actions done automatically without you really having to think about them. And this enables your brain to focus on more complex processing rather than these everyday actions. And then, you know, most of these actions, like reading coffee, they become cravings over time. Uh, and then as a result of this, if you don't have it for a couple of days, many people experience, like, you know, people who are everyday coffee drinkers, many people who don't drink it for a couple of days, they experience withdrawal symptoms. And you know this this just shows how powerful a habit is, uh, and it's so hard to break a habit. It's pretty easy to form a habit, uh, but it's so hard to break a habit because those neural pathways, which form as a result of the repeated behaviors, become stronger and stronger over time as the habit is repeated. Since the firing of neurons has been completely changed to fire at the beginning of a new behavior and the end of the behavior, rather than throughout the behavior. So generally changing, you know, new neural circuiting and network is not an easy thing to do with the great humans. Uh, and this is why behaviors are so important and why bad behaviors are very hard to change. And so that's all. Uh, I really hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chemistry Connections. For more student-ran podcasts and digital content, make sure that you visit www.hvspn.com. That's www.hvspn.com. So again, uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know it's a little bit on the longer side, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you.